We want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and this area's original name is Nam. We pay respect to them and their elders, past, present and emerging. For cultural sensitivity, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains conversations about people who are deceased. You're listening to We Want to Be Better. It's a little mini-series, babe. Turns out she had gotten up early and had taken pain medication because of a hangover-related headache. However, she mistook the drowsy eye alcohol warning for a winking eye alcohol suggestion. All I know about absinthe is that it's lethal as f- and it gets you absolutely hammered, sold. What's your drink, dude? White Russian, thanks. White Russian. Well, now my drink's talking and it's saying, drink me. I make life more fun. Do you always drink when you're doing media? No, it's my first time, but I love that drink. And I would taste my first glass of absinthe. I'm the green fairy. This snake juice is basically rat poison. Everybody's wasted. You don't even know what they're gonna even say, what they're gonna do. She asked me the whole thing and I didn't even do it once. Uh, right now, you're the expert. Is this enough to get 20 people plastered? 15 bottles of vodka? Yeah, I should do it. We've got bourbon. We can make Manhattans. Okay. Manhattans at this time of night? Bring the cocktail shaker. Oh, sugar. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. 95% of the population is undateable. Undateable! <laughs> then how are all these people getting together? Alcohol. <laughs> Okay, we have a massive, massive episode ahead and we are going to just basically jump straight into it, I think. You're... Yes. Yeah. Get to the... Get to the nitty gritty. So first interview that we have today is with Lauren Zonfrillo. You might have seen her from Gruen. Love Uh, that show. I love Gruen. It's such a good show. And we've spoken to her about advertising and how alcohol is marketed and the way that marketing of alcohol affects Australian drinking culture. Alcohol is a poison, it's ethanol, (laughs) and it does have terrible effects on health and society, yet we're still absolutely obsessed with it because it's marketed to us in a positive light. So what are some of the tactics used to market alcohol? How do you sell something that's so detrimental to our health? What's interesting in Australia is that Australians are now drinking less, but they're drinking better quality. So kind of about a third of the growth in spirits last year were in that sort of premium, super premium, ultra premium categories, which is really interesting. Because I think if you ask generally anyone, do you think Australians drink? Everyone will go, absolutely. And if you ask them, do you think they're, you know, they're drinking less or more? I don't think many people would say less. I think that many people would say that we're drinking more. But when it comes to spirits, we're finding that Australians are spending the same amount and therefore they're drinking less so they can get better quality. 
What is interesting with alcohol is this trend of, and it's not a trend, it's actually going to be sticking around for a long time, but it's tapping into current trends that are important to people. So for the first time last year, gin overtook vodka when it came to sales and searching and all that sort of stuff. And I believe the big difference is because gin has tapped into trends like plant-based diets. You know, they're talking more about the different grain that's going into the base spirit. And there's also this sort of perception of provenance being the botanicals that are added to give that liquid a local identity or to give it a flavor. And so they're trying to get people when they think about gin to not think about ethanol and alcohol, but to think about the freshness of gin and the botanicals and the plant-based stuff that's in it, which has meant that it's actually got a lot more traction. The number of gin brands in Australia and in the world is extraordinary. And, you know, vodka's always led the charge and now gin is leading the charge because there are some of those trends that they're picking up on and tapping into, like plant-based diets and, you know, botanicals. And making them pink, which is sort of, you know, makes it Instagrammable. Absolutely. And look, the, the pink gin is taking the world by storm. So it's very much focused on females. But it is extraordinary, the numbers, and I don't know them off the top of my head. I've looked at them recently. The thing is that they're identifiable, so you can't really tell one pink gin from the other. But as a category leader, you're able to go, Gordon's pink gin is the one that's leading the market, and they're, they've owned the category now. So they have different images that they use. So if you ever see a Gordon's pink gin, it is always served the same. So I challenge you to find it where it hasn't got ice and strawberries in it, and that's how they serve it. So it's becoming very much identifiable, like Hendrix was back in the day Mm. where, you know, you went to a bar and they put cucumber in it, and you're like, what? Now that's absolutely normal, but you know that if you get cucumber in your gin that it's Hendrix. Hendrix has owned that, and Gordon's has owned the pink gin, And definitely men are not ordering a pink gin and they're definitely not asking for it with strawberries. I think the Instagram trend of having pink alcohol is probably why rosé took off. Because back when I was, before Instagram, no one drank rosé really. But Mm. then everyone wants it because it looks prettier in the glass. Rosé every day. Yeah, rosé all day. The brands and the way that these, like, and rosé is a really good example as well, which is that the way that these brands win is by having the drink of summer. And the drink of summer needs to be very identifiable in the hand. It needs to be very Instagrammable. Aperol Spritz, yeah. Though, yeah. Aperol Spritz is a prime example of great achievement there. Like you go to Italy and you order an Aperol Spritz and like they frown at you like, oh, my God, the tourist is here again. Because it is we've the been most marketed. overrated drink, isn't it? Oh, look. <laughs> You know, it just depends. Like it depends on mood, location. There's something about a refreshing drink. So they call it the refreshing drink, which is that your first drink can be your last drink. So you don't start off on something and then it's way too sweet and then you move on to something else and then you end up on whiskey or something at the end because you're looking for something savoury. So the drink of summer is always about saying, and that's why rosé gets a massive tick, because you can start off it as your first drink and you can finish with it. Whereas, you know, something heavy like a martini, you cannot drink martinis all night. Like you would be legless if you drank martinis all night. Yeah, I've tried. Um, it doesn't so, work. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it doesn't work, does mm. it? It was a short night. Mm. Um, so that summer challenge is around sort of really Instagrammable or identifiable in your hand that you can drink it from your first drink to your last drink. And there's also that about 
80% of alcohol is consumed off premise, which means outside of bars, pretty much, you know, at home. So people like to have a perceived skill that if they're having friends around or they're having a couple of drinks at home with their partner or their friends, that they can make a drink as opposed to just pour a rosé. So they want to be able to make you an Aperol. They want to be able to make you a gin and tonic with a different type of interesting garnish. And that's that perceived skill that the next drink of summer is always trying to achieve because that's where you get a huge amount of income from, which is the off-premise sale. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a commercial for ourselves. Just a reminder that we have an upcoming show in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and tickets are still available. Amazing. It is going to be a miracle if we pull this off because some life events have been happening and they're it's fucked and <laughs> essentially I have to rewrite my show. So it's, cool. It's quite possible it might just be Bianca on the stage, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. But come and get tickets because if Annie's on stage, it's going to be a short dumpster fire. <laughs> I hate you so much. I love you. Tickets are available at anniebianca.com.au. Uh, yeah, we've got an AU. We've got an AU. Lots of things that are targeted towards women because women buy, you know, most of the grocery shopping and those sort of things. Is alcohol mm-hmm. the same? Is it often targeted towards women? Like, are women buying beer for their husbands? They probably are, but beer is very much focused on male advertising. Even when they're doing the zero alcohol beer, they're still trying to make it very masculine to say, you know, real men can drink zero alcohol beer because real men are designated drivers. So beer is very close to advertising to men. When there's an in-between, like Canadian clubs are a really good example where they're an in-between where they try to get people to churn away from being a beer drinker. So they need to talk to the men, but then Canadian club is also something that females will drink. So they are the really good example of someone who's done a great job over repetitive advertising for like a decade of being able to talk to men and women. But then when you do get into some of the gins and the drinks of summer, the drinks of summer are absolutely targeted at a certain demographic and a majority of the time it's women. How come alcohol is so gendered when you think of other foods? Like why is putting a strawberry in a drink all of a sudden a woman thing? Or, you know, I don't see Coca-Cola or Sprite or anything like that being so gendered. Oh, but Diet Coke is very gendered. Yeah, but that's diet culture. So anything diet, of course, is targeted towards women. But just generally speaking, food and drink is not so gendered as alcohol is. Like beer, I know plenty of women that drink beer and I'm sure men would love a pink gin with strawberries or whatever. Why is it so gendered? Look, it's a reflection of self. So it it comes down to part of your own personal brand about where you're sitting, where you're drinking. Do you know the name? Like you think about people choosing off a wine list. If you don't know anything on a wine list, you feel a little bit silly. So I think that when people are advertising alcohol, there is definitely different categories for different genders. And I see that across majority of advertising, unless it's like supermarkets, for example, where women are the grocery buyer or they're the gatekeeper of the home. Once you get outside of the home, you start getting further and further away from necessarily the woman being the gatekeeper. And you start going, well, I need to really target this. I need to target not just to women, but a specific demographic, a specific behavior, a specific location. 
competition. And that does mean that they become category leaders. Like Gordon's pink gin, unless we're going to change the culture around men wearing pink outfits to work, pink is a female colour. And so that means that Gordon's have gone directly for women with the pink, giving women something that they own and they they own that Gordon's pink gin category. Right or wrong around, because like I'm a I'm a here and there feminist, right? I have strong feelings in certain spaces. But when it comes to advertising, we absolutely have a choice as a man or a woman, whether we want to take in that message or not, or if we want to action it or not. So if men do want to drink a drink with strawberries in it, go for it. Like my husband does that. There's no shame in that. He's he likes strawberries, <laughs> you know, so he'll drink that. But I think that just gender and alcohol, it's very clearly you can put them in one bucket or the other. It's very rare, like when you have Canadian club, that you can put them on the fence between the two. Mm. Yeah. What is it that links Australian culture and alcohol so much? What? Like you were saying before, if you asked an Australian, do you think Australians drink a lot? Everyone would go, yeah. So what is it about Australia? Look, I think it's a couple of things. If you think of some of the iconic imagery of Australia, you know, of Crocodile Dundee cooking a barbie and drinking a beer, some of the iconic images of Australia actually do have people drinking. Bob Hawke. Um, yeah, Bob yeah, Hawke's going a beer. beer yeah. um, a yard, yard glass or a beer. We are a climate where drinking is very social and we are a climate where we can pretty much be outside socialising every day of the year. It's not like it's snowing outside and therefore, you know, you're a little bit more of a homebody. Now, warmer climate means that we do drink a lot more. That's why a drink of summer anywhere in the world is a really peak time for sales, whereas we have an easy climate to work with. So therefore, we drink more regularly in the other months. And, you know, part of Australia's brand is mateship. Female or male, mateship is hanging out with your mate. And when you hang out with your mates, you're normally having a drink. You know, when I was pregnant with my son, my husband and I would look at each other and go, do you want to go out for dinner? It's like, it's not that I don't need to eat. It's that we weren't going to drink. It has such a big knock-on effect into your life. And so we would definitely go out less because dining out for us and going out on a date night is about choosing a nice bottle of wine together and having a laugh and all that sort of stuff, which we know we can still do without alcohol, but there is a part of it that's part of the combination for a great night out or a great time out with your friends. That's part of our culture. So I know that there's a lot of negativity around alcohol and that's normally because of the the behaviour and the health aspect of it. And there's no doubt we've all pushed it too far. We've all had hangovers. But the main part is endangering yourself and other people. And so when it comes to advertising around that, we've pretty much got two sets of advertising. One is where you're showing the consumption and everyone's happy and laughing and it's fantastic, or you're showing a drink driving ad and the really grave effects of drink driving. They're pretty much the only two images I can come up with when it comes to advertising alcohol in Australia. And both are effective. I often think, not that this is in advertising, but one of the images that I have in my mind of Australian drinking culture is Australians in Bali, um, <laughs> you know, like in yeah. Cooter and just being obnoxious mm-hmm. and stuff. And not that that's either, either it's not killing someone in a car and it's not yeah. glamorous out for dinner or anything. Mm-hmm. But to me, that really sticks in my head. I don't understand then <laughs> why I can't really grapple with the idea that people can see it as glamorous as it is? I think it's location-based. So, yeah, there's no doubt if you're hanging out in Kuta, you'll probably go, wow, this is people letting their hair down in the way that they let their hair down. 
Whereas if a group of CEOs are having, letting their hair down after work, it's a very different version of letting their hair down. So it's just really a socioeconomic driver as well, which is letting my hair down, having a bit of a laugh. When applied across different the socioeconomic groups, the behaviour is different, but also the perception of the other socioeconomic groups is different. Yeah, there's no doubt that I don't love that kind of the cooter drinking. I've spent a lot of time in Bali over the years. I don't love it. I remove myself from it. That's because I drink in a different way. You know, I'm not into day clubs and all that sort of stuff. That's just not me. I'm just, it's not my my personality, but I'm just too old for that sort of thing. We were accidentally, my husband and I, at a day club in Bali at the end of last year. And my husband said to me, they're going to think we're undercover cops because we're so old and we've got so many clothes on. Like we had shorts and singlet tops on. We've got so many clothes on compared to these other people. They're surely going to think we're cops. And so we stayed for an hour and then we're like, Let, let's go back and sit in a restaurant. And so us sitting in a restaurant doesn't mean we're going to drink any less than the guys at the day club, but it's the behavior attached to it. If we drank the same amount and then we rolled back to our hotel room, that's very different yeah. to the behavior in a day club when you're social and there's a concert on and all that sort of stuff. So you were speaking before about the two different types of alcohol advertising. We do have warning ads like drink wise, which is a separate sort of to smoking ads because smoking ads tell us it's never okay. Don't smoke, you know, quit now. But with drink wise, it's like safe amount. Yeah. There's no safe amount when it comes to smoking, but when it comes Mm -hmm. to drinking, it's sort of like drink responsibly, but both are quite dangerous. Both are class one carcinogens, but why is it that we are told drink responsibly and not don't drink? Moderation. And yeah. Why is it always on the customer? Yeah, look, unless it's illegal and it's in this category around sort of smoking and drinking, people do look to the government or to their doctors for some sort of guidance on what is appropriate. When you do see some of these drink-wise ads, they're pretty much around toning down your behaviour or not asking your child to get you a drink out of the fridge. I don't know the stats behind, you know, the difference with health-related illnesses when it comes to smoking versus drinking. I just I just don't know that level of information. But we have had some full blanket bans on drinking in certain locations or after a certain time. We've had blanket bans on where you can and can't smoke, and that's to protect other people. Unless it's illegal, people are going to consume And it's the government that drives these campaigns to say drink responsibly or don't do certain things as a helpful tip because there's no way of taking either of those products off the market. Is it easier to market for or against alcohol? Oh, when it's so entrenched in our culture, advertising for is so much easier. Yeah. (laughs) You know, wow. It's like getting someone to churn away from a brand is hard enough. So you're trying to get someone to churn from, say, Vodafone to Telstra that in itself is hard work. But to churn off a mobile phone altogether, like you have to be amazing and you're not going to make much progress on that. So, yeah, no, they're definitely not. You know, it's a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I think there's also kind of this advertising residue that makes advertising for much easier. Like we've had this foundation of years and years and years of different advertising and seeing people doing different things with alcohol, whether it's in magazines, it's on Instagram, it's in movies or it's in advertising. There's a like this foundation that's been layered and layered and layered. And in there is some of the warning messages, but majority is really happy, smiley people drinking alcohol. And that's kind of given alcohol as a brand greater awareness and understanding. But when you advertise against something, it needs to be really dramatic or you need to give them an alternative. And so with the against 
advertising around alcohol in Australia, it's very much been drink driving. So that's been the sort of what's my effect mechanism. And that's been reducing drink driving rather than reducing drinking. And sort of showing that overconsumption or the irresponsibility as a way to dial back behaviour as opposed to kind of switching off that behaviour. someone on that actually was pro-alcohol, I yeah, suppose. I guess we had to, at some point, get someone <laughs> on. I mean, I will say it's very difficult to find anyone in, in advertising. <laughs> we cannot stress enough mm. how hard it was to get anyone on mm. from the advertising industry onto this podcast to talk about alcohol and just be truthful. I wanted to talk about advertising specifically because when I got sober, I read... This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. One of these days we'll actually put that one to air. We will be airing that episode. How have we gone this far without putting out Annie Grace episode? I think we're like building up to it. Yeah, okay. We'll get there. Get very excited for it. But in the book, she discusses how you have your conscious mind and your unconscious mind. So this is the thing when it comes to alcohol. Consciously, you might say, No, I'm not gonna drink tonight. But your unconscious mind, which is the one that controls your emotions, the one that basically tells your conscious mind what to do, that one has been subjected to alcohol advertising. It's seen movie and TV all your life that shows you you need alcohol to socialise. Alcohol relaxes you. Alcohol makes you better in bed. So you see all of this in your unconscious mind. And while you consciously might be thinking, no, I'm not going to listen to that ad or no, I'm not taking that in. Unconsciously, your brain is taking it in. And it have this little voice in the back of your head that says, hey, maybe you should have a drink tonight. You know, you've had a stressful day. Then your conscious mind gets that thought and then you consciously have a drink. Yep. Even though consciously you didn't want to. Yes. Yep. And that's the interesting thing about advertising and alcohol is that, as Lauren was saying, not only are we subjected to advertising, but there is the movies, there's the TV, there's all this pop culture that we see and our mind straight away absorbs that information yeah and it is still allowed to be advertised on tv commercial tv you can only advertise alcohol between 12 and 3 p.m on school days and 8 30 p.m and 5 a.m on any day and you can show alcohol ads during sports programs on public holidays and weekends from 6 p.m friday you cannot broadcast alcohol ads on commercial tv for children i mean that's a bit of a given yeah well when you're not allowed to (laughs) bloody advertise sugary cereal at that time either, you yeah. would hope that alcohol... You would that, hope so. That's where the bar is. But the thing is, there's no rules about when alcohol can be advertised on radio. There's no rules whatsoever. So an alcohol ad can come on during the school drop-off. There's no laws. Wow. So, And even aside from that, you do see it in everyday life anyway. So yeah. your unconscious mind is constantly just being fed this narrative that you need to have alcohol. I found it interesting what she talked about in wanting to have a drink at home and impress people that really Mm. offended me actually (laughs) to my core Uh, from the top of my mind your sangria just went hello sangria margaritas everything you see insta story your recipes i know 
I know. People still message me now and they're like, can I have the sangria recipe? I'm like, obviously not. <laughs> you know, she's right. You do want to be able to impress people. I think that's why the Aperol Spritzer has taken off so much. They sell it together. It's a two-ingredient little cocktail. And even when it comes to buying alcohol, you would buy something that you – not necessarily just that you had tried before, but that you knew a few things about, some talking points between people so yeah. that when they came over, you're like, oh, this one, it's from this region. Yeah. <laughs> like when it's wine, you could, no one cares. No one cares. <laughs> wine is considered a very fancy drink. If you buy a $100 bottle of wine, then you obviously know what you're talking about. But we also know that Audi $3 wines in blind taste tests often win yeah, out. But it's, it's just like, you know, it's about what it means for your personality and your personal brand and how people view you. If people see that you drink a fancy wine or that you know what you're talking about or you know how to handle your cocktails in your own kitchen, then they've got more respect for you. This is the thing. We like to match our drinks to our personality. So we sort of have this perception that well, if I drink a martini, then I'm obviously a very classy person and I can handle my drink. When Sex and the City came out, every young woman wanted to be drinking a Cosmo because the girls on Sex and the City did that. And everyone I went wanted through to a be phase like where I just wanted to make sure I had a cigarette as I wrote on my laptop. Oh my God, <laughs> oh, that was off. my life. I love, and I make sure I was near a window yeah, that I was looking out. I don't even have a blog, but I would sit there <laughs> typing away like I'm so important. Definitely fell for the Cosmo and you know a brooding author may choose to drink whiskey or like scotch on the rocks mm. and we sort of adapt the persona based on what we drink I mean Lauren was saying that people are drinking less but they're spending more money on more expensive alcohol but I've been drunk with <laughs> I've been drunk with very rich people and I've been drunk with very poor people my memory of all of those nights is the same it was a drunken mess so it doesn't really matter if I'm drinking Grey Goose on the rocks in a very fancy restaurant or if I'm drinking goon from a goon sack in a red cup. At the end of the day, I'm absolutely sloshed and making a fool out of myself regardless. The idea that alcohol can give you this sexy, classy life is quite strange because at the end of the day, you're still a drunken mess. I really liked how Lauren talked about the gender differences mm. and how they're marketed so strongly towards, <sighs> you know, time. women versus men. Yeah. And how things are pink and strawberries and beer is claimed by men and I thought that we could maybe listen to an ad to see if we could yes, hear the difference. absolutely. Let's do that. Well, let's listen to the pink gin ad because that's what Lauren talked about, Gordon's yep. pink gin. I feel bad that we're playing an ad on our podcast. Yeah, that's so true. Guys, take it with a grain of salt. We are, we are analysing it <laughs> we're here. We're analysing it. We're not it. giving them free marketing. No. O-M-G-N-T. It's Gordon's pink made with real berries. No wonder Abby has taken 700 photos and counting. She hasn't even had a sip yet, but who can blame her? It's just so beautiful. Hashtag Gordon's Pink. Hashtag Real Berries. Hashtag Delicious. Hashtag Yum Yum Yum. Gordon's. Shall we? I absolutely <laughs> fucking hated every second I of really that. I really love the bit where she hasn't even taken a sip of it yet. Of course she's taken Hashtag 700 photos. Like the, the gender bog. I'm in two minds because I do like pink drinks. <laughs> and I like pink. I, know. I do love pink and I love pink oh, drinks. But at the same time, I'm really pissed off that you are really taking the piss out of our gender. 
But it really is, as we were saying, all about your perception. This person was saying that they aren't even drinking the drink. They haven't taken a sip. In the entire ad, the, the drink does not get drank. It just sits there. It just sits there with its strawberries looking pretty and talking about how it's going to be on Instagram. Mm. Next, we're going to listen to a classic Aussie VB ad. You can get it dipping. You can get it chipping. You can get it having a row. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Victoria Bitter. You can get it lumpy. You can get it thumpy. You can get it any old how. Matter of fact, I got it now. Victoria Bitter. Okay, I hate that it's catchy. It's I fucking good. <laughs> yeah, it's look, a it's, fucking a good ad, it's a really yeah, good one. It's, really good it's so annoying. And I the smiled. Thing is, I know that you probably, people that are listening, probably remember the ad, but just so you know, the amount of masculinity shoved into this ad. <laughs> so they've got, you know, men playing shearing cricket, sheep. shearing sheep, and they're mining, and they're just doing manly bloke stuff. Yeah. Could not be more Lugging masculine. Stuff. I'm actually just going to read some of the comments. So. <laughs> so this one is I can feel my chest hair growing So Me too The best beer in the world I am Australian I love VB And I hate terrorists <laughs> oh When someone God. When someone asks me What Australia's like I just show them this video Oh yeah It's only 7.53am But as a matter of fact I've I got, got it, it now. now Yeah <laughs> It's not even targeted to us. I why know. don't I smile through well, that? Why do I know all the words? Uh, in her book, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, which I'm going to bring up again, she talks about how advertising isn't selling you the product and it's not selling you the product's product, but it's selling you the product's product's product. Oh, wow. Way right. to make it really simple to yeah, understand, Bianca. So in her book, she explains it. For example, take perfume advertisements. The product is a yellow liquid that looks a bit like urine, right? That's what the actual product <laughs> is. But the product's product is a yellow liquid that smells nice. Still, smelling nice isn't why people buy perfume. That's not how they advertise it. So what they are actually selling you is the product's product product, which when it comes to perfume is sex. So you're saying that they're trying to sell us not physically that it's a liquid, not even that it's a liquid that smells nice, but it's the way that it's going to make you feel about yourself. Is and how you're going to like, attract a male partner. I mean, when you look at advertising for perfume, it's very sexy. There's a lot of and whispering like, j'adore. <laughs> so what they're selling is sex. They're not selling mm. you the smell. They're selling yeah. you the idea that you'll become very alluring when you wear it and that will, that's sexy. Because it's intimate to be able to smell someone's perfume. It is intimate mm. and I remember watching this movie called Perfect Strangers where Halle Berry is getting ready and she's spraying perfume and she does it in the normal areas of like the wrist and the neck. Then she sprays it on her vagina. What? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I'm a woman but I've never – is everyone else <laughs> – wait, no. are we doing that? Because I'm not. I have no idea what the director no. was thinking. I've never sprayed perfume in or near my vagina. I have sprayed it on my inner leg. 
once when I thought that I was going to go have someone go down on me. <laughs> okay, I don't know how we've gone there. Okay, anyway, but keep going. Uh, sorry, if we're thinking about the product, 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 and this is what Lauren was saying, that we're selling mateship. And when you oh. look at that VB ad, what you're really selling is masculinity at the end of the yeah. day. And you're selling manly relationships. Yes. Heterosexual Manly, <laughs> make, manly man, relationship. Make sure it's those hetero ones. Exactly. Yes. It really does touch on all aspects of culture and mm. identity. But I thought that we would bring to this podcast a point of view that we simply just can't understand to do with culture. And that is how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are impacted by alcohol and what their experience of alcohol is. Before we get into it, I thought that I would talk about three major points that I found statistic-wise about alcohol and Aboriginal people. The first one to me blew me away, only because of the racist stereotypes that Mm. anyone that lives in this country will know that there is a lot of racism about Aboriginal people and alcohol. But the first point is is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are less likely to drink alcohol than other Australians. Mm. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I would not have known that. Would you have guessed that? No. Um, Which just goes to show... That it's penetrated us, just like we were talking about advertising or television. There's also just racism penetrates as well. Another amazing fact is that one of the demographics with the greatest decline in consuming alcohol that exceeds those lifetime risk guidelines is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So not only are they less likely to drink, but of those people, they are drinking less, which is also amazing. Two facts that I wouldn't have guessed either. But the one that really worries me and scares me is that according to the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, alcohol was associated with 40% of male and 30% of female Indigenous suicides, which is pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Mm. Um, And it's alarming statistic when we know that 80% of suicides amongst youths, which is those aged between 10 and 24 in this country are Aboriginal, right? 80% of the people that unfortunately die from suicide are Aboriginal. 80%. Right. So So they're at a very at-risk At risk. The Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association are saying that of those Aboriginal people that are dying, which is quite a high percentage of their population, 40% of the males and 30% of the females had alcohol associated with that. That's really confronting. They're just the stats. We obviously don't understand what it's like to live as an Aboriginal person. So we reached out to a really good friend of this podcast mm. who we love dearly. Tarneen Onus Williams is a proud Gundijamara, Bindle, Yorta Yorta and Torres Strait Islander person living in the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Boonarong peoples. Tanin is a community organiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance working on Invasion Day, Black Deaths in Custody, Justice for Elijah and Stop the Forced Closures of Aboriginal Communities WA. They're a filmmaker and writer and have been published in Indigenous X, The Saturday Paper, NITV and Right Now. 
But Tanin's day job is working with Aboriginal women who have been incarcerated in a housing program and providing them with support and transitional housing. So I'm really grateful to them for coming on and sharing their experience. Absolutely. Amazing. Hey, before we do get into that though. Do you want to do a little plug? <laughs> yeah, because I feel like we've been <laughs> advertising actual alcohol. And we this. don't want to advertise actual no. alcohol. And this is we, not SponCon either. No. <laughs> we just wanted to we give are a not, plug. This whole bloody alcohol series, we haven't been paid a dime for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't been paid. Don't stress. Mm. That's not why we're in this, obviously. But we do want to plug a proudly Aboriginal owned and led company called Sober. That's S-O-B-A-H. And it's Australia's first non-alcoholic craft beer company run by husband-wife team Clinton and Lozen Schultz. And it's got bush tucker infused in it. Yeah. It's delicious. Um, I ordered an entire slab of it, right? I had the intention of sending it out to all of our guests that have been on this podcast. And Liam has drunk it all. Yeah, I've seen him get into it. (laughs) I'm absolutely furious about it. So I'm sorry, every guest that's been on this podcast, that the amazing sober beer hasn't come to you. Mm. But yeah. Non-alcoholic craft beer and they've got Australian bush tucker in them. So support, support. Black business. So you can check them out at Sober Beverages, that's S O B A H Beverages on Instagram and find a stockist near you. Now, Tanin. Tanin, how does alcohol impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? I think that because we do live in Australia, there is a culture of consuming lots of alcohol and I think that has inherently affected Aboriginal people because of colonisation, because of assimilation and it's impacted us in ways which are similar but really quite different, I think. I think that, you know, Aboriginal people consume alcohol. Um, I was looking at stats and it was that Aboriginal young people specifically. And it showed, uh, there's a Goanna survey, which was a survey done by an Aboriginal person and it was delivered by Aboriginal communities and it was the, one of the biggest surveys done um, for Aboriginal young people. And it was looking at, you know, sexual health and drug use and alcohol use. And it actually showed that in 12 months, like 78% of Aboriginal young people consumed alcohol, um, all at different levels, but for young people... Uh, in the non-Aboriginal community, it's actually at 82%. So it is slightly higher, which, again, like, I was surprised about, but also not surprised. Like, there's lots of young Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people, because we do have that community collective, we socialise around doing cultural practice. We we do things around sports and, like, basketball and, like, lots of other things. But there also is the other end of that where, you know, Aboriginal people are affected by alcohol in really negative ways there is like the overuse of alcohol like in any community we can see that in Turak or we can we see that um in remote communities in the northern territory but I think it just depends on like your different class and obviously race and all of the different aspects of someone's identity that we notice it more in Australia yeah so I, I assume this, um, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders didn't have alcohol before colonisation. Is that right? Yeah, we didn't. We didn't have alcohol before 
and it was used in the beginning as a way to control Aboriginal people and get us to kind of do what the colonizer wanted. And it was really funny because they used that and then they stopped alcohol um, when they opened up the mission. So it was just like the different parts of history in the ways that alcohol has been used for Aboriginal people has been like quite significant because it was trying to remove Aboriginal people from their land and then it was you're moved on to missionaries and now you have to be Christian and be sober. So the way that alcohol has been used and not used in our communities have been like quite confusing I think. And, and it's been sort of inflicted on you, obviously. It's, you didn't yeah, ask for this. Exactly. And now we consume alcohol the same as everybody else, but um, it's much different now, like in comparison to how it was when we had the missionaries and when we, Aboriginal people were first kind of being removed from land at the first invasion. I was watching... Um, Rabbit-proof fence, actually, with my kids. Mm. And they were giving out the rations to the main character's mm. mothers. And, yeah, one of the rations was alcohol. Yeah. There was, you know, three vital things that they were giving out and one of them was alcohol. It was, um, yeah, certainly confusing that that would be a necessity, I suppose. Yeah. So there are dry communities that mm-hmm. I know sort of vaguely about. I have had no personal experience of this, but how do dry communities work? Are they led by community Aboriginal people or are they enforced by government or how does it work? Uh, it's enforced by government. So what they do, it kind of like reminds me of like they have a mission or like a community uh, where people live and the only way you can buy alcohol. I don't know, I was up in Jabiru visiting my uncle last year, for instance. And it is a kind of like a dry community, um, but it's also like a mining town. So the only way you can get alcohol is if you are a member of the local golf club and you're only allowed one bottle or one like one bottle of spirit and one like one slab of alcohol. And so, so it's been used to control Aboriginal people again. Yeah, so definitely the same. And you know, in other communities, they have people that actually go through the card and have looked through the card to make sure people aren't bringing in alcohol as well. But and the government is doing that. Yeah, so searching the cars to make sure they're not bringing in more alcohol than that they're allowed to. So, But is this, is this a thing where Aboriginal people have said, we want a community that is dry? Or is it the government saying, no, you've got, you've a, got, problem. You've got a problem, you have to stop? Like who's picking? Well, it's a bit of, it's actually a bit of both, but it's mostly the government. Um, oh, big surprise. Like I think there's some, <laughs> I think there might be like a couple or like um, of communities that have chosen that this is going to be the best for our community. But I think particularly, you know, after the, Northern Territory intervention and all of that, they have really answered up and like banned lots of alcohol and like the, and controlled the amount of alcohol that people can have in that community. Like you have to, you know, show your ID as well. I've had it when I was in Alice Springs where I ha- you have to show your ID. Like there's other people who have fair skin that don't have to show their ID and they scan it to see if you, how many bottles you've bought as well. So, like, in the Northern Territory, they have a scanner system, so people have to scan their ID and it goes into a database. And this has been purely implemented for Aboriginal people. So, crazy, you go to Woolworths and even Darwin and you have to scan your ID to buy alcohol, yeah. 
So it's like what? when you try to buy Sudafed, if you, you give them your card and then they're like, oh, you bought some within the last two days, you can't have any more. Yeah, I know what you were saying. Like prescription medication. Like if you buy Sudafed because yeah. it's got Sudafedrogen in it, they're like, do you know, you can't, you can't buy Do you know what we tried to buy like not long ago? Oh, yeah, I know. Worming tablets <laughs> for our kids. <laughs> and we were only allowed to buy one pack. Mm. But they just needed to do the follow up dose yeah. where they like, you have to come back in a week. But. That is a law, but this sounds like people are just going rogue and racist. Yeah, what I think. The fuck. I think as well. Like the law can be applied in different ways. I think that's the interesting thing about the law. It's not just about the law. It's actually who it's applied to. And I think when they have these laws, they can they can choose to when to apply the law. Yeah. And they choose to apply it to only Aboriginal people. I think specifically in you know more remote communities but obviously Aboriginal people broadly, and that goes across to lots of different laws. And that, I think in Melbourne, they have, um, in, in Smith Street and in Fitzroy and Brunswick Street, the councils in the place have actually created laws to stop people from drinking on the street, and it was purely made because Aboriginal people were drinking on the street. So you're not allowed to have an open drink. I think if you're around Smith Street and Brunswick Street, then you'll see signs like near park benches that say that you're not allowed to have an open container of like an alcoholic drink. And that was purely made for Aboriginal people maybe like five or six years ago um, because, you know, they wanted to not show that Aboriginal people exist and getting rid of us out of the parts that they want to expand on. So gentrifying Fitzroy and um, Collingwood, moving Aboriginal people out of that area and making it all really nice for hipsters and for people from around the world to visit um, has really impacted um, Aboriginal communities because it means that we're not, you know, gathering as much. And, like, if I was looking for somebody, then you could just go down to Smith Street or, or Brunswick Street, but that makes it less likely now because of those laws. Like, there's still a few people that hang around there, but it's actually really sad that there's not the community that's there anymore. And so these laws actually destroy the communities um, that have been there, you know, since the 50s. And so... And um, also that would look out for one another. Yeah. Exactly. There's definitely laws that uh, in Victoria as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very frustrating because obviously, as you said before, they're using alcohol to control Aboriginal people. And I guess at first it was sort of like, well, we'll give them alcohol, get them drunk and, you know, keep them docile, I guess, and be like, well, you can't take yeah. care of this land, so we'll do it for you. And now they're like, oh, no, no. You, we don't like you having it, taking it back as well, and then controlling you and telling you what you can and can't have. It just, it's infuriating. Yeah. And I think, you know, if people were actually, oh, there's a story um, which uh, we were, me and like my auntie were at a university dinner, and there was this white dude there. And he was just like talking about Aboriginal people, and he was talking about to us about like this book that he wrote and blah, 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 blah. And he was, oh, you know, the alcohol is really bad up in Alice Springs. And my auntie says, yeah, the white people are terrible drinkers. And he was like, no, I'm talking about the blacks. So we were just horrified. You know, we were at a really prestigious university in Melbourne and this man was telling us how bad Aboriginal people drink in Alice Springs. And when we, like, you know, when my auntie said that it was, oh, it's the white people he was absolutely horrified that we had assumed that. Which you know, is weird, it's... though, because if you think, well, I mean, it is just blatantly racist, but yeah. I, considering there's the Sydney lockout laws, 
They came in, let's be real, because white men were getting smashed and bashing people. That's exactly right. And and it just blows my mind that, oh, it's so offensive to this man that you would assume that white people are drunk. Yeah, and like when you see footage of, say, the Melbourne Cup, the footage of white people pushing over police officers because they're drunk, you know, it's, it's... I don't know why they're taking off their shoes and throwing in. It's all a big laugh. Peeing on the side of the road, you know. Yeah. It's all the drunk dude that gets like loses his phone and has selfies with the cops in there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually a really good segue to ask my next question, which is about public drunkenness. And I know Mm -hmm. that you've been um, quite vocal about the laws surrounding that and. The reality is is that um, police ha- have been treating people and profiling people differently and mm. unfortunately there has been some really bad consequences of that. Mm. Yeah. Like I think that's what you know, I'm saying before is that laws, like they're laws but they are applied differently to different people and I think that's the case with public drunkenness and the lot of people who leave the MCG um, who are really drunk but... Yeah, and there's police officers there, but the police do not apply that law to the people leaving the footy, but that law was applied to Anitania Day, who was, she caught the bus and then to Bendigo and she was on her way to Melbourne and she was on the train from Bendigo and she was, you know, asleep on the train, like she was drunk and asleep and the ticket inspector asked to see her ticket and she, as she was trying to find her ticket, he said that, she was being unruly, so, you know, he called the police on her. And at Castle Main Police uh, train station, um, the police had come and had removed her from the train. And they'd once had taken her to the police station. They had arrested her for public drunkenness. That night she had been, while she was in the cell, she suffered significant head injuries from falling and being in custody for so long and also not being checked on for numerous hours because the police were at a Christmas party. So they were understaffed and left an Aboriginal woman who was drunk in a cell by herself without checking on her. And after her significant head injuries, she died um, a few weeks later. Uh, And, you know, in that police cell, it was the last time that she was conscious. So um, she was then transferred to Melbourne um, to hospital and it was the last time that she was ever conscious was in the police cell before she got those those head injuries. And it's quite sad that in Victoria that our progressive states that this is happening. Um, but it's, that, it's awful that, you know, this law exists and that it's specifically applied to Aboriginal people and particularly Aboriginal women at the time that Aintania Day was arrested, it was, Aboriginal women were 10 times more likely to be arrested by police for being drunk in public. And it's a real shame. And they've just, the family have been campaigning for the law to be abolished. And the government has committed to decriminalising the law. But I think what the family really want is for there to be a community and health response and not a police response to this. And because Aboriginal people and anybody that come into touch with the police, there is a chance of death there because of the neglect and the violence that people face um, from being arrested. So 
the family and you know, other people in the community have been really campaigning for this law to be abolished and we really want to keep the government accountable and at the moment they're doing consultations with numerous organisations and experts on how they will respond to people who are drunk in public and what like what to do and how they will respond to that and apply that work. So um, I really hope that it does get through because this will save so many Aboriginal people's lives. Is there just, some way like, that you know, people can get involved or pay the rent, so to speak? At the moment, the family are wanting to build up a black death in custody fund uh, for people who lost people to dying in custody and there's been you know, quite a few lately. Um, but I think the family have a GoFundMe account and if people can write to their local minister and their ministers and just encourage that the government actually have a community response to doing this and not just including police, um, I think that would be really helpful. And I guess that's what the family want as well. They want to reduce police interaction with people who are drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess... I guess that's why people can support and, um, you know, I can keep you guys updated as well about what's happening and hopefully soon there's three conversations happening about how to best support the family because the inquest is nearly finished and it was like a two-week inquest and now the, we're just waiting for the recommendations back from the, the coroner and they've already made recommendations for the law to be abolished already, which is great, but, yeah, we're just want to best support people because as long as this law exists, there's going to be more people dying because of it. And it's because of the criminalisation and the stereotypes that people have of Aboriginal people. And another thing I did want to highlight as well that, you know, even people who are having heart attacks or have diabetes and they're having a hypo in the street, like Aboriginal people have died because of that, because people have assumed that this Aboriginal person's drunk. And they've died because they think that the person's drunk and not actually having a hypo or a heart attack. This stereotype is really dangerous and, yeah, it's just awful. We need, like, a health response. Yeah. Because, I mean, it is racial profiling entirely to Aboriginal people. I mean... And should, As a white woman, it, I'm I'm drunk in this. I've been drunk in the street many times, and it's never been. I've literally never. It's never been a problem. I've never been apprehended. Well, never been mm. a problem from like things like police or anything. No, and, yeah, like and, I've spoken to police, and yeah. you know, mm. I've been like absolutely shit faced, and they're just like, oh, you know, with the um the the stereotype. How has that personally affected you? I mean, obviously, it's not easy having this. I guess public perception of you. Yeah, I think it is pretty difficult. I, so I think in Melbourne, like it's strange because people will be like, oh, I never see Aboriginal people. The only time I see them is when they're drinking on the street in Smith Street in Fitzroy. And that is the only time that they visually can see Aboriginal people. So they refuse to see us outside of that and that their stereotypes only allow them to see us as people drinking in the street you know there's always that person's like oh I've never met an Aboriginal person or I've never seen an Aboriginal person and they definitely have seen them and like met Aboriginal people but the perception of what Aboriginal people are ignores us and our existence and as nuanced people because they only have a particular idea of what an Aboriginal person is. It's confirmation and bias it's that they're fed this stereotype and when they see anything that doesn't fit into that stereotype it just doesn't sink into their brain but when they do see something that fits into 
the racist stereotype that, you know, is spread around, then, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's that's noteworthy. Yeah, and I think it also creates a lot of shame for community as well, like, to get help if they do have issues with drinking. And I think it's like anything, you sort of shame about drinking or drugs, then people aren't going to get help for it because they're scared that they're going to be um, shamed by their health professional. They're worried that people are going to judge them, the people that they'll be working with. And actually the shame around having addiction issues stops people from addressing the help that they might need. I've been significantly affected by alcohol in my life. And I think that it's been really hard to talk about because I am an Aboriginal person and don't want to feed into the stereotypes of what, what, what white people think of Aboriginal people. Yeah, it's, just, it's actually just really sad. And I, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like really just tired of it. I'm like, I don't even care, you know, like in public and like I'm on a panel. I'm just like, oh, yeah, just like come have a drink with me. I'm just like, you know, now I'm just like I don't really like I just don't care what I'm trying like not to care as much about what people think not really giving back yeah yeah for sure thank you so much so much for coming and talking to us you know we love you we think you're the ants pants (laughs) 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 all right have a good time up there you too bye Bye, darling bye bye This podcast was produced, edited and hosted by me, Annie Nolan, and my best friend, Bianca Thompson. Music by Pleasant Pictures Music. As always, make sure you're following us on social media channels. On Instagram, we are at We Want To Be Better. Facebook, at We Want To Be Better. And come and join our closed group and forum at ww2bb community group we always forget to ask for this but if you had a moment we would also appreciate if you rate reviewed and subscribe to this podcast it really helps us reach more listeners and we love hearing from you this week we have two special guests to thank Firstly, you heard from Lauren Zonfrillo, the founder of award-winning marketing and communications agency Pulse. Lauren is also the board director of the Orana Foundation, which is set up to shine a light on Australia's Indigenous food. So please check that out. You can also find Lauren at Lauren Zonfrillo on Instagram and Twitter. Secondly, you heard from Tarnine Onus-Williams. Tarnine is a very active leader and writer in the Aboriginal community, so you're almost certain to see them again. Again, but make sure you follow them on Twitter at Tarneen to keep up to date. That's right, just one name basis. <laughs> Thanks for listening.